Well, today is a big day. Thank you all for being here, especially at this late service. I know it's not far till game time. How many of you all plan on watching the Super Bowl this afternoon? How many of you care about the outcome? Yeah, no Texas teams in it this year, so I don't think people are quite as concerned about that, but I'm sure most of you will be, or many of you will be watching this. You know, several years ago, when the Seattle Seahawks were playing in the Super Bowl, we had in our church this guy who was just an unbelievable Seahawks fan. He wasn't from that area, but somewhere along the line, he had just become a Seahawks fan, and he was so excited because one year he was invited to go to the Super Bowl when the Seahawks were playing, and he just could not believe it. And he walked up to my associate pastor, and he said to him, he, he said, he said, well, I just got to tell you, I'm not going to be here next week. Uh, I just want to say I'm sorry, but I'm going to be at the Super Bowl. And my associate pastor said, well, why are you apologizing? He says, well, I'm just not going to be worshiping next Sunday. I'm not going to be here at church. I'm not going to be worshiping. And my associate pastor said, everybody worships on Sunday. The question is where and who do you worship? Guy still went to the game. <laughs> and, and I would expect that. The reason I bring up that story is because today we're going to be talking about the theme of idolatry. Idolatry is actually a major theme in the book of Isaiah because it is something with which Israel and I think all nations and all people struggle. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying God's promise to take Israel from a, person, uh, from a period of historical ruin to a time of historical restoration. Beginning in the 40th chapter, the prophet Isaiah was telling the people of Israel that God was going to take them from the ruin of their exile in Babylon after the destruction of Jerusalem and return them to their homes and restore them to their purpose as God's chosen missionary people to the nations. But alongside of that, we've also been considering how God takes us as His people from the ruin and personal rebellion we experience to restoration in our lives as well. We've talked about it on both a personal level and on a community and church level. Well, today, we're going to read from the 45th chapter and turn to this topic of idolatry. A necessary part of Israel's restoration was reckoning with the idolatry of their past and turning back to the God who had made them and called them as a people. So if you will, turn to chapter 45 of the book of Isaiah, beginning in the 18th verse. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save? Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, 
a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. God had chosen Israel out of all the tribes of the earth to be a whole nation of missionary people. A whole nation of people declaring His truth in a world of ignorance and confusion and lies and showing God's love in a world of violence and apathy and injustice. But as the nation became more prosperous, as they became more powerful, the people began to feel less and less dependent on God. Israel started to look around at her prosperous and powerful neighbors and wanted to be just like them. The kings felt less dependent on the Lord and turned to the excesses of false gods. The aristocracy exploited the people and the populace became more selfish and more self-absorbed. The nation, once completely devoted to the Lord, became completely distracted from their purpose and their identity. Now throughout her history, Israel was pulled back and forth between the distractions, the values, the temptations, and the idols of the world around her and the devotion to the God who made her. And what was true of Israel historically is also true for us individually. The more secure and successful we become, the less dependent we feel toward God. The more distracted we are by the values and the temptations, the idols of the world around us, the less devoted we are to the identity and the purpose for which God has made us. Our passage today is about the tug of war between distraction from God and dependence on God. And the theme of Isaiah's message is this, that distraction leads to ruin, but dependence leads to restoration. Now the Bible has a word for the things that compete with God for our attention. It has a word for the things that, that distract us and compete with God for our hearts and our will. The Bible calls them idolatry. Now when we think about idols, most of the time we think about little statues or little fetishes made of 
bone or wood or gold or silver, maybe even plastic. But idolatry has a much broader meaning because idols can be conceptual, they can be made of a material, they can be made of flesh, they can be institutional. The classic definition of idolatry is this. Idolatry is worshiping and serving the things that God has created instead of worshiping and serving the God who created them. So anything that is created that takes the place of the Creator qualifies as an idol. Anything that we give our devotion to, anything that that we give our attention to, anything that we give our love or our lives or our trust to above God or in spite of God or to the distraction of God is an idol. Another way of putting it is that an idol is something that competes with God for your attention, your loyalty, and your will. Now, as I said, idols can come in a variety of forms. They can be the little fetishes that we talk about, or they can be things like fame, sex, money, television, technology. Maybe they're issues like gun control or immigration or taxation or sexual rights. Those have all become idols for many people. Maybe even institutions like sports teams or political parties or ethnic groups. Any institution that competes for our attention, that competes for the love and obedience that we owe to God, that thing is an idol. An idol is anything that distracts you from your God-given purpose and God-given identity. As I said, they can be wood and stone and bronze. They can be ideas, ideas. They can be institutions. Or maybe they can even be people. That's something we see a lot these days. You know, last Sunday evening, I got home from a meeting here at the church. Bo was doing his homework and Morgan was doing some busy work. And so I just sat down and turned on the TV And the big show on TV last Sunday night was the Grammy Awards. Now, I'm not usually a fan of the big award shows like the Oscars or the Emmys or the Grammys, but when I turned on the TV, I found that I just couldn't look away. It was was not unlike the award shows that I've seen in the past. There were some incredible performances, and there were some incredibly raunchy performances. And I'll tell you, I love music. But it doesn't take long to figure out that the Grammys aren't really about music anymore. The show is about the celebrities. I mean, there are all the celebrities, all the beautiful people. The ones on the stage, the ones on the red carpet, the ones behind the scenes. And there's the fashion and the money and all the adoring fans and the fawning reporters basking in the glow of their presence and hanging on their every word. These are the people that our culture reveres. They are celebrities. Did you ever think about that word celebrity? At the root of that word celebrity is the word celebrate. These are the people that we celebrate. And we not only pay attention to them, We pay attention to the things they tell us to pay attention to. Like all the other award shows, the Grammys have become a rally to promote the distractions of our culture. The stage has become a political platform and a cultural pulpit 
And the celebrities tell us what to like, what to reject, what to eat, what to wear, what to buy, how to exercise, what to endorse, what to approve, what to enjoy. They tell us how to live and what we ought to think and certain things and people from social issues to history to styles to causes to trends, what we ought to endorse, what we ought to endure, and what we ought to disdain. And as you listen to artist after artist, you realize that the ones who win the awards are not just the ones with the most musical talent or the best technical skills, but rather they're the ones who are most successful in embodying and manipulating the spirit of the age. Now, all of those celebrities collectively are saying, I'm going to tell you who you are, and I'm going to tell you what to do, and I'm going to tell you what to feel, and I'm going to tell you what to think about people, about fashions, about issues, about whatever. Here's the problem. It'd be one thing if they were just up there talking. The problem, though, is that we are listening. We listen to those voices, and we take them seriously. We listen to the voices that seduce us with promises of popularity or that threaten us with condemnation. We crave the approval of the celebrities, and we crave the approval of our peers and are terrified of their disapproval. We buy into their values of fame and image and comfort. Also, envy and contempt while dreading vulnerability and honesty and responsibility and morality. We will compromise our integrity, betray trust, sacrifice any relationship, or step over anyone just to attract likes or to look cool to the right people or not look uncool to the wrong people. Before long, the affirmation of our idols means more to us than the authority of our Creator. These are the symptoms of distraction. Is it any wonder that the album of the year was an album self-proclaimed to be about depression, suicidal thoughts, climate change, and bad guys. What are the idols that are speaking into and, di and directing our culture? And what are the idols that are distracting us and you and me from God? So we hear about those things and we read about those voices, but into the tumult of those voices, among all those voices clamoring for our, for our attention, all trying to tell us who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, God says, I am the Lord. There is no other. I am the Lord. There is no other. Israel's restoration and our restoration will not come from the false promises and distractions of idols. Israel's restoration would come from her dependence on God. You know, we don't like to think about the word dependence 
as an asset. We don't like to think about the word dependence as a strength. But when it comes to God, we are either in a position of rebellion or reverence. We're either in a position of distraction, following other things, or dependence on God. Surrendering ourselves to Him. Our restoration depends on our dependence. So first, our restoration depends on our knowledge of who God is and who is God. I didn't just repeat that weirdly. I really meant that. Who God is and who is God. First, who is God? Isaiah says He is God. The God who created the heavens, the God who formed the earth and made it. He is the God who says, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Thus says the Lord, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the Lord, there is no other. I want to stop here and I want you to notice something. Look at your Bible. Or look at the screen. Look on, look on your app. Throughout Isaiah, you're going to see that God is referred to as the Lord. But if you'll notice the printing there, it's printed... Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Is that right up there? Yep, there it is. Now, that unusual printing is not a typo. That unusual printing signifies something very important. Even though it sounds generic to call God the Lord, what it means is that God is giving them, and He's giving us His most personal and proper name. When you see the word Lord... Printed like that, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That represents, in the original text, the unique, most holy covenant name of God. The name we know as Yahweh. This is the name He gave to Moses, and the name that Moses gave to Pharaoh. This is the name that means I am that I am. Now why is this name Yahweh so important? And why is it so important in the discussion of idolatry? In the Bible, there was no shortage of other gods. And this name is important because the name of the Lord is about specificity. It's about acknowledging this God, this specific God, this specific reality and at the same time, renouncing all others. It's about understanding who is real and who is really in control. That He is not just simply one name among many names, one path among many paths, one method among many methods. This is not the name of just any generic God. This is the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true and living God, and He is the one who is, I am, Yahweh. There is no other. So first we need to know, first our restoration depends on who God is and who is God. Next, our restoration depends on trusting God and believing the truth of His Word. He is the God who tells the truth. Because He's the God who has nothing to hide. Look at verse 19. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness, 
I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. To depend on God is to acknowledge the truth of His Word and to acknowledge that there is no other truth apart from His truth. There is no other way apart from His way and there is no other life apart from His life and the life that He gives. He is He who says what He is and He is He who says what He means and means what He says. I am who I say I am. To say that we trust God is to take Him seriously and know that He is the God who keeps His promises. Depending on God means that I surrender to Him. I trust Him completely. It means to say, I'm all in. I'm holding nothing back. It is to accept and to understand that we're never going to be what we're supposed to be and we're never going to do what we're supposed to do until we trust the truth of the only true God, the one who made us, the one who redeemed us, the one who loves us, and the one who has the power to make a difference in our lives. So our restoration depends on trusting God. Third, our restoration depends on renouncing the distractions that have competed for our attention and have kept us from turning toward the Lord. And the Lord asks, why are you listening to those other voices anyway? They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. He's saying they don't know you, they don't love you, and they can't help you. They can't save you. They're a distraction. They can't save you because they're not even real. You know, in the previous chapter, if you want to hear God crack a joke, if you want to you want to see if God has a sense of humor? Look at, at chapter 44, around verse 8. Verse 19 in that same section says that Isaiah says, the person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why, it's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? That's God making a joke about idols and the gods that aren't real. You know, after winning her third or fourth Grammy, one singer humbly thanked her fans. And I, I think she was being sincere. I think she was absolutely sincere. But this is what she said. She said, we can't do any of this without you. You are the ones who make all of this happen. That's a sobering thought because she's right. That's the problem with idolatry. We make our idols and then we worship them. We make them and then we serve them. The things that we make to serve us, we serve them and obey them. That's the folly of idolatry. And that's why we need to identify and confess them. What's the distraction that dominates your attention? What is the thing that should be serving you that you are serving? Is it money? Is it your career? Is it some relationship? Is it something that is distracting you from your God-given purpose and your God-given identity? So God says, Turn to Me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. You know, I believe that the most important word in this whole passage 
is the word turn. Here's what I love about this passage. God does not condemn us for falling to distraction. Rather, our Father reaches out lovingly and He gives us a chance. He gives us an opportunity to turn around and be saved. The Lord's saying, you have to turn around. You have to change the way you think and you have to change the way you're going. Isaiah is telling us God has a better, a holier, an eternal vision for you. He has made you His holy people and His royal priesthood. He's made you to make a difference and to bear the light of His truth to the world. But you're headed in the wrong direction. You have to turn around spiritually and take your relationship with God more seriously. You have to turn around morally and rethink your personal behavior. You have to turn around socially and rethink your relationships and your responsibilities as a community. The Lord is saying you're not going to go from ruin to restoration if you're going the wrong way. Turn around. You're not going to go from ruin to restoration if your distractions are giving you the directions and leading you. It's not just that you turn around from idols. It's about turning toward Him. And I think that means two things. First, we need to turn around and get back on God's path to your God-given purpose and identity. We can't move from ruin to restoration unless we turn around and walk in His direction. But I think there's another reason that He tells us to turn and it is infinitely more touching and infinitely more personal. I think it's because He wants us to turn and face Him because He wants to see your face. What do I mean by that? This is a gesture of love. You know, sometimes my kids get upset with me when I tell them to put down their smartphones. They think it's because I'm a control freak or because I, I have something against cell phones or because I'm punishing them. And I tell them it's, it's none of that. It's none of those things, mostly. I tell them because I want to see your face. It's not about control. About relationship. That's what your Heavenly Father wants. He doesn't want you to be distracted. He doesn't want you to be, He doesn't want to have to compete with those other things. He wants to be able to look at you face to face and He wants you to see Him face to face because He loves you and He wants a relationship with you. Finally, our restoration depends. Not on our faithfulness, but on His faithfulness and His grace. You know, it would be so much easier to follow God. It would be so much easier to be a follower of Jesus Christ in a vacuum with no competition, with no stress, no temptations, no distractions. But that's not the world we inhabit, is it? The temptations are far too seductive. And the distractions are too overwhelming. So what do we do when we fail? Does God just turn us back around and give us over to the idols? No. When our devotion fails, we trust that He keeps His promises. Even when we fall. Because it's not about my faithfulness. It's about 
His faithfulness. It's about, not about what I have to do. It's about what He has done through His grace. And so again, the voice of the Lord, the real God, cuts through the noise. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. The only thing that is going to lead us to restoration is our dependence on the one true God and trusting that He is not going to let us go. What the Lord decreed in Isaiah, He has fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. If you hear those words that I just read, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is exactly what Paul said when he said that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He says it begins with turning, and it's finalized in our surrender. Surrender is an essential step. Swearing allegiance is an essential step to our restoration. It means that I am going to follow Him. That I am going to put all of my eggs in one basket. To say that I surrender to Him. To say that I depend on Him is to say that I believe that He is the Lord and there is no other and I can't do it on my own. That I not only believe in Jesus Christ, but I am totally dependent on Him and I am betting my entire life on Him. What are you betting your life on? Upon whom are you betting your life? And there was something else that happened last Sunday that made last week's Grammys a little bit different from years past. Last Sunday afternoon, before the Grammys, NBA All-Star Kobe Bryant his daughter and seven other people were killed in a tragic helicopter crash on their way to a basketball tournament in California. Kobe's death cast a pall over the entire event that night. After all, the Grammys were being held in the Staples Center in Los Angeles, the very arena where the L.A. Lakers play basketball. The Staples Center has often been called the house that Kobe built. And several times during the performances, the cameras would pan to the rafters of the Staples Center and show, hanging there, Kobe Bryant's retired 24 jersey hanging in honor. And the juxtaposition of that was incredible. For all of the spectacle below, that jersey hanging in the rafters was a constant reminder of the difference between what is real and what is not real. Of what does not matter and what really matters. Of what lasts and what does not last. In spite of all the distractions of fame and money, we're all going to have to face that reality one day. And in that day, to whom are you going to turn for help? When your life is a wreck, when your family's in ruins, to whom will you turn for help? Who do you call? Who are you going to trust when it counts? Who are you going to follow? Are you going to trust in something that's not real or are you going to trust in something that is real? 
Who do we trust? And why do we trust them? This morning, as we were sharing communion in the early service, I remembered that the morning that Kobe Bryant died, he and his family went to church, and that morning in their church, they had communion. And that act, he stood at the table and set his heart before the Lord and said, I depend on you. And in my faith, in my belief, that means that that day God showed Himself to Kobe Bryant and said, I am the Lord and there is no other. Why do we put our faith in this One who declares that He is the Lord? Why do we follow Him over any other God? We follow Him because He's not like any other God. He's different. He's different because He formed the heavens and created the earth. He's different because He not only called Israel to their identity and to their purpose, but restored them when they failed and picked them up when they, fought, when they fell. He's different because this is the God who did not just stay at a distance, but humbled Himself became one of us, took on our life, lived our challenges. He's different because this is the God who surrendered His body and blood on the cross for our sins to prove how much He loves us and how much our lives mean to Him. And He's different because this is the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead to prove that He has the power to make a difference in our lives now and forever. The idols of this world want you to prove your love for them. But our God is different. Because our God is the God who proved His love by giving His life for us. And this table around which we gather today, is here to remind us that there is no other God like Him. He is the Lord. And there is none like Him. Because He is the One who became one of us and gave His body and His blood to prove, for his, to prove that His love for us is as real as the bread that you put in your mouth and the cup that you bring to your lips. And that's why we gather around this table today so that we can remember, so that we can remind one another that the God we worship is the Lord and there is no other. There is no other name on heaven or on earth, by which we may be saved. But He is the God who invites us, who calls us, who says, turn and you will be saved. Come. My burden is light. Come. Because my grace is free. Come. Because you are forgiven.
we come to this table not because we have to be worthy, but because we're invited and we're invited. Not because we have been righteous, but because we are made righteous by the one who gave his life for us. This is the joyful feast of the people of God. who says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Heavenly Father, as we come together around this table, remind us of the steadfast love you have demonstrated to us in your willingness to send your one and only Son as the sacrifice for our forgiveness and our redemption. Help us to be always ready to give testimony of the hope that is ours in the power and authority of the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Guide us as we seek to become instruments of your peace in a world full of distress. Give us wisdom and direction and empower us to make a difference in our homes, where we work, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and to the ends of the earth, believing that you have the power to change one heart at a time. We pray for those that you have called to lead locally and globally. Help us to trust that you are in control, even when it feels otherwise and give us boldness to live as responsible servants of your kingdom. We pray that your peace that passes all understanding will guard the hearts and the minds of those who are in need of a special measure of your grace in their lives. Carry them through their journey of grief or sickness or pain, and remind us of your faithfulness in every area of our lives. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon this bread and this cup and be present with us as we celebrate this communion. You have called us together to be the body of Christ. Unite us now at your table and in one loaf and one communion cup make us one in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.